Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. year is 2022, and the news media most of us grew up with is all but dead. Advancements in technology have forever altered the nature of news and political news coverage. Network, cable, and online news organizations value speed over accuracy and cater their reporting to specific ideological and demographic groups. They lean hard into storylines that stimulate their base and avoid reporting stories that run counter to their preferred narratives. The result is an ever-expanding partisan divide within an inadequately informed populace. A cultural civil war is brewing. Two rogue journalistic purists stand opposed and have dedicated themselves to protecting journalistic integrity and the relentless pursuit of truth. Their names are Liz Habib and John Ziegler, and this is their podcast, The Death of Journalism. Welcome to episode number 38 of the Death of Journalism podcast. My name is John Ziegler. I am your host. Later on in this particular episode of the podcast, a mainstream media clip on equity versus equality that belongs in a museum. Definitely the best clip of the week, maybe the year. So much to get to. But first, I want to begin with the biggest political story of the last few days, which was the conclusion of the so-called CPAC conference, the political action conference in uh, the Washington, D.C. area, where Donald Trump, of course, was the keynote speaker. It was basically a Trump event now, which is really so amazing and it's so remarkable how things turn out in life because I have had a very extensive experience with CPAC, the Conservative Political Action Conference. And in fact, I believe that I was way ahead of my time when it came to calling out the corruption of CPAC. That's probably been the biggest story of my life and career is where I have always either been ahead or behind the curve. My timing is almost usually terrible. And when it came to CPAC, I was way ahead of the curve because I saw immediately what a bunch of frauds and grifters these people were. And I was on the inside. I had spoken at CPAC uh, several times in the early 2000s. And in 2009, I was both a speaker and a sponsor because I had a movie coming out called Media Malpractice, How Obama Got Elected and Palin Was Targeted about the 2008 presidential election. And it was creating quite a bit of stir and getting a lot of attention in the mainstream news media. In fact, the week of CPAC in 2009, I had actually appeared on the Today Show earlier that week with uh, an interview with Matt Lauer in the the key 7.30 live time slot that got rather contentious and created a bit of news. And I had been on all sorts of Fox News programs that particular week promoting the movie. And I had also been involved in the run-up to CPAC that year because I was a sponsor, because I had the movie coming out. I paid CPAC, I don't know how much it was, pretty significant, but not exorbitant amount of money to be one of the so-called sponsors. And that allowed me to be in on the planning meetings 
And I had always, you know, thought that CPAC at the beginning of my experience was this pretty great thing, you know, where real conservatives got together once a year, exchanged ideas, had a good time. I would hang out with Andrew Breitbart. Uh, you know, it was almost uh, like a family reunion type of thing or a, a homecoming weekend was maybe the better uh, example or description of what this was. Andrew Breitbart loved CPAC because that was where he was with his people. Everyone there knew who he was. Everyone there knew he was the man behind Drudge, and he had a lot of power and cachet there. And we would hang out and have a lot of fun. Uh, but I was always a little skeptical because it seemed like the wrong people were being highlighted. But I was I'm, the way I work, which is usually to my detriment, is I always presume any person or entity is acting in good faith unless and until I have evidence that they're not. And then once I realize they're not, then uh, they're dead to me. And that's basically what happened with CPAC. And it wasn't until my experience as a sponsor that I realized the inner workings of this place were incredibly corrupt and far worse, even back in 2009, than I could have ever possibly imagined. Like, for instance, I remember one of the planning meetings the idea, and this is so funny in retrospect, the two of the speakers that were being proposed were Joe Scarborough from Morning Joe on MSNBC and Jerome Corsi. And I raised an objection to both of them because, first of all, Joe Scarborough had been incredibly soft on Barack Obama in the previous election. And it's hilarious now to even think that Joe Scarborough would either want or be wanted at CPAC because how he has survived at MSNBC all these years since is is maybe one of the most underreported and astonishing major media stories of the last decade, because here was a guy who was instrumental in promoting Donald Trump, who's the most hated man in the world to the MSNBC viewer during the 2016 election. And he would never even think about uh, going to CPAC now, and nor would he ever be remotely thought of being invited. And I was told you know, this is a good point, and we'll take it under consideration. And sure enough, uh, Joe Scarborough was there speaking. And I was like, what the hell is this? So I realized, wait, hold on. There's something else is going on here that has nothing to do with the uh, conservatism or the cause. And the same with Jerome Corsi, who was a, a 9-11 conspiracy nut. I raised that, and they said, oh, that's a really good point. We ought to really take a look at that. And, of course, Jerome Corsi, who I'm sure was paying CPAC, was also given a very uh, prime speaking role at CPAC, far better than, than my speaking role was, by the way. And it was their, their treatment of me that had me very suspicious. And I never, to this day, knew, was it about me or was it about uh, Sarah Palin, with whom I was being associated because I had done this major interview with her, the, made, the only really major interview she did about the media coverage of the 2008 election. And that was the, the backbone of my movie. And it gotten all sorts of insane media coverage on the right and on the left. And so I, my sense was it probably was with me and there were probably people within CPAC who saw me as a threat and, and wanted to see me sidelined. I also don't think that they were particularly um, hot on the idea of Sarah Palin at the time, which, again, is hilarious because she was basically the precursor to Trump, who they then basically became the image of. And so this was really a key moment in the transformation of CPAC from a legitimate political organization that had really credible people and at times very significant debates and, and you know, a lot of brain power, people like Charles Krauthammer and George Will. They were the people that would be celebrated at CPAC to, to what it is today, which is basically Trump fest on steroids. And 
It was just after I had had that experience in 2009, which then culminated, by the way, later that year on the in the Western version of CPAC. I don't even know if they still do this, but they used to do a Western version of CPAC, which was a much smaller version than the Eastern version, which was in Washington, D.C. And I was slated to be a speaker. And I interviewed David Keene, who was the head of CPAC at that time, before my speaking role was supposed to happen. And I basically, um, I don't know if, if, if he, I'm sure he thought I blindsided him because he thought it was going to be a softball interview. And in, instead, it turned out to be me going after him on pay for play issues within CPAC and specifically how he had, in my opinion, done Sarah Palin wrong. Now, the whole Sarah Palin issue is incredibly complex because she turned out not to be the same person that I knew. And it is my very strong belief that she basically became what the news media made her in order to survive and to make money. And she thought to remain relevant. It didn't turn out for her at all. The best analogy I can use or or, or description I can use of Sarah Palin in the sh- very short version is that she was the good girl who went to the big city all naive and then eventually was forced to turn into a life of prostitution. Uh, so the Sarah Palin I knew was not the same person that turned out to be what she now currently is, which is a total and complete joke. Uh, and that's an incredibly long story, which maybe someday I'll get into on this podcast. But the point was that at the time I was, I was realizing that CPAC is a fraud, that these people are corrupt, that this is all about pay for play. This is all about grifting and that uh, Keene himself had done Sarah Palin wrong. And so I confronted him and he went nuts. And the video, uh, you know, was was somewhat, I don't know if it went viral, but it was a, a segment on MSNBC that that night. Keith Oberman, I think, even accused me of either having an, a crush on or an affair with Sarah Palin because I was so uh, determined to defend her against the David Keens of the world at that time back in 2009. Uh, but uh, needless to say, my speaking engagement at CPAC, which was scheduled for like an hour later, did not happen. <laughs> I knew it wasn't going to happen after that, and I was perfectly prepared for that to occur. Although my whole attempt was to try to expose CPAC as a fraud and as an entity that should not be trusted. And of course, I got no support, even from people who had publicly expressed support, not publicly, privately expressed support to me and with me on this issue. And then I went into battle and they were nowhere to be found. I'm talking about people who were there, people in the right wing media. And it was a really edifying experience uh, on so many levels. One about how corrupt uh, CPAC is, that it's just about grifting. It's just a business. It has nothing to do with the cause. It's not about the truth at all. And that those who cover it in the right wing media are also not to be trusted. And I believe that my experience there and my attempt to expose them has been completely and totally vindicated over the last decade or so. Because it was right after that, when I became persona non grata instantaneously at CPAC, after being a, a speaker there for several years and having been a sponsor, uh, I, um, I then saw something happen that was easily predicted and which has led to where we are today, which is that Donald Trump, this is such a key moment, that I, I think I'm one of the very few people that's even ever written about this, and I have done so back when I was a columnist for Mediaite. Back in 2017, I wrote a column about, um, hello, people, are we not going to remember that in 2011 and 2012, Donald Trump was a lifelong liberal? 
a lifelong New York City liberal who was trying to get street cred within the conservative community. And he paid CPAC reportedly, I believe, $100,000 each year. He paid CPAC $100,000 so that he would be given prime speaking roles in 2011 and 2012, which he used to suddenly have the conservative base see him as a conservative. And this was during the time period of his crusade on the bogus Barack Obama birth certificate issue. And this was a very key moment in the history of the country, the way it turned out, because without Trump paying off CPAC and getting those speaking roles and getting the street cred in a credible fashion, because again, this was what my goal was. I didn't want conservatives to look at CPAC as being a a place that was reputable, that was credible, that could then rubber stamp somebody else's conservatism like they did with Donald Trump in exchange for $200,000. And Trump used that to forward the whole Obama birth certificate canard fraud. And that, at the time, I don't know whether or not he was thinking he might run for president in 2012. That's possible, given his ego. But it certainly set the stage and created the path for that to happen four years later. In 2015, 2016, and it worked. And it was an important part of how it was he became the Republican presidential nominee to begin with. And ever since then, CPAC has gone way downhill. And it has taken a long time for people to catch on. But it seems as if this year, they're finally catching on. I was only, uh, you know, 12, 13, 14 years ahead of the curve when it came to people understanding what CPAC is and how dangerous it is, because this year was a disaster. The attendance was pathetic. I mean, pathetic. Apparently, there were only about 2,000 people who paid the, the money to be able to go to the conference, which and then allows you to vote in the straw poll for president, which is notoriously inaccurate. I mean, the history of, of CPAC straw poll winners is is very, very poor when it comes to, uh, to doing well in Republican presidential primaries. But it still gets a lot of media coverage. Though this year, a lot of the media coverage was about where is everybody? Nobody's here. And how it has become an absolute Trump cult event in every possible way. And Ron DeSantis chose, I think, very, very wisely not to show up. I'll get to what happened with him this weekend momentarily. But Nikki Haley spoke and, you know, almost all the speakers were exceedingly pro-Trump. They was all leading up to Donald Trump's keynote speech, which allowed him to go on Fox News Channel live for the first time in many months, because there was also a story that has been widely circulated now, that there's a soft ban on Donald Trump at Fox News Channel that has been going on basically for for many months now and may even include members of his family. Well, Fox News did not cover CPAC, which I also think is part of this whole dynamic. There's a lot going on here from a media perspective. That's That's partially why... There wasn't nearly the crowd there. I, I look at it kind of like as you know, the race riots. Whenever you know which comes first, the media coverage of the race riots or the crowd with regard to race riots or or their actions. It's not a perfect analogy, but it's kind of the same thing. If there are no TV cameras, are people really going to show up 
and, and put on what is often performance art. Well, if Fox News Channel isn't covering CPAC on a, on a moment-by-moment basis, it doesn't seem like it's that big of a deal, and then you get a smaller crowd, and then you, you get you know, a situation where things start to have a downward spiral. Well, I believe, consistent with this soft ban theory that's going on around Fox News Channel and whether or not uh, Rupert Murdoch or whoever's running Fox News Channel now has decided that we're not going to help Donald Trump in any way that, that is not absolutely necessary, that they have decided that since CPAC is a Trump event, that they're not going to do anything to promote CPAC, that they don't absolutely feel forced to do so. This was even an issue at CPAC. Uh, Steve Bannon made it an issue uh, on his media. Steve Bannon, the former chief of staff uh, for Donald Trump. The So the, re- the reality here is that, that it p- appears as if Fox is trying to, in a, in a soft way, in a way that isn't so clearly obvious, sideline Donald Trump as much as possible. But they did carry his speech, which was almost two hours long. And interestingly, they only had one camera there. This was what, how little uh, Fox News put into CPAC. I've never seen this. I've never seen this at, at Fox News Channel. You know, uh, uh, granted, it's a, on a Saturday, which they don't really care that much about. But I have never seen in my least recent memory, Fox News Channel, which is by far the most profitable cable news network, have a two-hour window where they showed one camera of one guy, which was, you know, obviously this is a planned situation. It's not like it's breaking news. They only have one camera there. They knew when the speech was going to happen. They had one camera. They never even showed cutaways for almost two hours. They just showed Donald Trump speaking which, by the way, may have been helpful to Donald Trump because they didn't show the crowd. And the crowd for Trump was better than it was for the rest of the the carnival barkers at CPAC. But there were photos that were being shown online that indicated that huge portions of the back of the hall were completely empty, even for Donald Trump's speech. And so Fox News Channel does carry the speech live, almost two hours. As I said, one camera no cutaways. And with regard to the speech itself, look, I have said many, many times that when it comes to Donald Trump, you know, he's the ultimate example of where showing up is 90% of the battle. Unless and until something happens to Donald Trump's health, where he cannot be an effective candidate uh, for the Republican nominating and uh, the Republican presidential nomination, until that happens, or unless that happens, then it's very, very difficult to see how this works out well in the end, regardless of what path it ends up taking, whether he's the nominee, DeSantis is the nominee, or somebody else somehow, which I can't even see how that could occur. But if someone else were to be the nominee, there's almost no scenario. And I've said this many, many times, and it because it bears repeating, it's the most important element of this whole thing, is Trump showing up. And when he shows up, does he have enough vigor to be able to do this? And he did show up, and he clearly had enough vigor. No question about that. He went on for an hour and 45 minutes. It was incredibly self-indulgent. It was bizarre at times. It was delusional at other times, which is all classic Donald Trump. But he clearly has the energy, and he clearly cares. He clearly wants this. And that's at least 90% of the battle for Donald Trump. So unless something dramatic happens, that part of this equation doesn't appear to be changing. 
He's not going to, you know, be a situation where he's in uh, Joe Biden land where people are going to be able to claim that he doesn't have the energy or he's getting into dementia territory or his health's not good enough, whatever it is. No question about that. Trump ended any any question, if there was any, that that is not going to be a problem for Donald Trump. I want to play at least one short, semi-short clip from Trump's speech, because I think it gives you a sense of, of where he is mentally and with regard to this whole narrative that if you give me one more shot, one more shot, I'm going to get it right this time. Because <laughs> so much of what Trump says, you keep thinking if you're rational, well, wait a minute, didn't you already have a chance to do this? You were president for four years. You had a Republican House and a Republican Senate for two years. <laughs> so, And you 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 seemingly didn't care uh, about what anyone thought of you. So it wasn't like you were really all that concerned about uh, pleasing people. You could have just done what you wanted to do. Well, here was one of the many clips from the CPAC speech where Trump goes into this and specifically, (laughs) he basically starts to change uh, his promises and how people, at least within his cult, should think of him and what he's going to bring for them if, in fact, he is elected president a second time. And if you put me back in the White House, their reign is over. Their reign will be over. And they know it. And America will be a free nation once again. We're not a free nation right now. We don't have free press. We don't have free anything. In 2016, I declared, I am your voice. Today, I add, I am your warrior. I am your justice. And for those who have been wronged and betrayed, I am your retribution. I am your retribution. Not going to let this happen. Not going to let it happen. I will totally obliterate the deep state. I will fire. Now, the key portion of that clip to me was when Trump promises that I am your retribution. I am your retribution. He said it twice. I'm your retribution. (laughs) I put that one in the pantheon of uh, presidents of the United States and statements they have made. I am your retribution. Now, nobody desires revenge or retribution against those that have have done harm to our country than me. Nobody. No, literally. I'm, I mean that seriously. Nobody wants more venge, wants vengeance more than I do about what has happened. But for a, a the front runner for the Republican presidential nomination and former president of the United States and say, I am your retribution. <laughs> and for it to be cheered, I think says so much about where we are and how far we have fallen as a country and as a Republican Party, because uh, I mean, that, that's a Rorschach test right there, it, you know, because I'm sure the Trump fans loved it. And I'm sure the people that don't like Donald Trump were like, oh, my God, uh, that, that that is just that's just horrendous. I am your retribution. But it might it I might not just might. It will work uh, with his cult because they're angry and they see him as the vehicle through which their anger can gain this retribution or this vengeance uh, against their enemies and those that have done them wrong. 
So I'm sure that the the Trump fans love the speech, even though it was an hour and 45 minutes long. And as I said, the, the, the length of the speech shouldn't go to how good a candidate he is. It just goes to how much energy he has, even at his advanced age, and how it is that his health, at least right now, is clearly not going to be an issue. Now, the straw poll that I already referenced came out uh, late on Saturday, and it indicated that Donald Trump, not surprisingly at all, had run away with the results of the CPAC straw poll for the Republican presidential candidate in 2024. Trump won 62% of the vote. And there were only 2,000 votes, which is really the key uh, number there. Not because this was scientific. It was never going to be scientific. But in order to be able to vote, you have to have paid the money to go to the conference. And that was a very small number of people. When That's why the crowds were as pathetic as they were. And that's that's an indication right there that Trump is maybe losing his appeal, even among the cult, that there weren't 5,000 people that were willing and able to go in you know, the first weekend of March to the Washington, D.C. area to, to see Trump and his sycophants put on their little convention. And so that's potentially a good sign. And I would even say that the straw poll results had some good signs related to them. And you're saying, what, Zig? Trump won with 62% of the vote. How could that possibly be a good sign? And and I realize I am not known for my optimism, and I'm still very pessimistic about how all this is is likely to turn out. But as I always try to do, I'm always trying to find, okay, where's the kernel of hope here? And there there are a few kernels of hope, even in the results from the CPAC straw poll. First of all, I was honestly surprised it was only 62%. Considering who those 2,000 people were, I mean, this is as deeply rich Trump cult territory as you can get when it comes to those that are going to go to CPAC and pay the money to be there, all right? And so only 62% of those people decided that they wanted to have Donald Trump as their choice for the Republican nominee in 2024. Ron DeSantis got 20%. He wasn't there. He had no presence there. He was even indirectly attacked there by many of the the Trump sycophants. Trump himself did not mention DeSantis, but he he mentioned a lot of people that are becoming DeSantis surrogates, people like Jeb Bush or Paul Ryan or Mitch McConnell or you know, the the rhinos of the world. That's that anybody that's not with him is automatically a, a rhino. And so there was no reason for DeSantis to do well at all. He had literally snubbed the conference. And for him to get 20%, I thought was incredibly strong. And even more important than the number was that he was the only person that showed up in in the straw poll at all other than Trump. And in fact, Nikki Haley, who spoke there and stuck around there, and put a big effort into CPAC is the person who was the biggest loser when it came to at least that straw poll. She finished fourth at 3% behind a guy who finished third that I have never even heard of who who apparently did a write-in campaign 
So Nikki Haley finished behind an unknown who did a write-in campaign and only got 3%. And she was there. Now, that is maybe the most significant thing to come out, certainly of the straw poll, if not out of CPAC in general. And here's why that is, I believe, potentially very good news. I actually kind of like Nikki Haley, even though she's way too PC for me. And I I disagree with a lot of what she did uh, in that realm as the, the governor of South Carolina. And she's she is, you know, she is not a strong Republican. I would never support her as a presidential candidate unless it was the only option to win. But I do think that she's, you know, pretty smart and she has an appeal and I can see her as a vice presidential nominee, especially for Ron DeSantis. And she has foreign policy experience. So I, I don't dislike her. However, she's a problem for Ron DeSantis. And the reason why she's a problem is that all of her votes come right out of Ron DeSantis. They ain't coming out of Donald Trump. And polls have shown this. And there's a magic number. and There's there's no science to this. This is just common sense. But in, in my mind, the magic number here, and I've said constantly the biggest problem that DeSantis is going to have should he run against Trump, is a multi-person field. Well, a multi-person field is only a real danger in two ways. One, it clutters the debate stage, which is a problem, which makes it more difficult to go after Trump and it more, make it more, more difficult to shine if you're DeSantis. And then there's more people to go after DeSantis because no one's going after Trump. So that's still going to be a problem. But here's where the good news is. If Nikki Haley's support is really that pathetic, even at CPAC where she speaks and where she makes a real effort, then she's not going to get to that magic number of 10%. And the reason why that number is is magic in some ways is that in order to be considered a real contender, you have to be continually getting in double figures. And if you don't get in double figures, even those that support you start to realize that this is a fool's errand and they get demoralized and they realize that you're not going to win. And so even if they like you, they start to shed. And they go elsewhere. So you rarely ever have somebody who holds on right at eight or nine percent. <laughs> you either get to twelve and you're a contender, and then as other other candidates drop, you may grow a little bit. Or if you don't get into double figures, you just dissipate and fade away. And based upon this very unscientific poll, this straw poll at CPAC, there's a good argument to be made. Nikki Haley ain't getting the double figures. And if Nikki Haley ain't getting the double figures, one, she's not taking that big of a chunk out of Ron DeSantis. Two, she ain't sticking around very long. Now, you know, the most logical scenario here is she holds on through New Hampshire and then decides when we go to South Carolina, where she used to be governor, that she's going to endorse whoever she thinks is going to win. That's what Nikki Haley is very likely to do because she's in the VP sweepstakes. So if you're her, your goal is hang on through New Hampshire don't get embarrassed and then withdraw and endorse right when the South Carolina primary comes up. And my fear has always been that she's going to do that to Donald Trump because Donald Trump will be still the favorite at that point, And she will put all her money on the guy who hired her as the UN ambassador, because that would be her best shot to be the vice presidential nominee. That's all theoretical, but I think it's also very logical. So there was some good signs there Trump doesn't get 80%. DeSantis gets 20%. Nick Haley only gets Nikki Haley only gets 3%. Nobody else even shows up basically on in the straw poll. 
And Larry Hogan, who was never going to be a threat, but I think this is symbolic. Larry Hogan, the so-called Republican governor of Maryland, even though I, I and others call him Lockdown Larry for how he pathetically handled the the COVID panic, he has decided he is not running for president. After almost essentially announcing a few weeks ago, he put out a statement over the weekend, he is not running. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Again, that's not going to impact the race, but it's symbolic of the fact that, okay, there are people that are realizing this is just a two-person race, that there's no chance here. And if Larry Hogan is able to realize that this early, then maybe others are going to also realize that. Now, again, maybe I'm being delusionally optimistic, but right now I can at least see a path where one of the biggest problems that was going to happen here doesn't occur. The biggest problem was going to be four or five or six major candidates all taking a chunk out of DeSantis. And as he tries to herd these cats, he can't compete with Donald Trump's 35, 40, 45%, whatever it is, however large the cult is. And that really is the key number. And a large part of why I keep going back and forth between optimism and pessimism deals with that number. That is an unknowable number, but that is the number that matters. If the Trump cult is at 45%, this thing is over. Donald Trump will be the nominee. There's nothing anybody can do about it. If, however, the Trump cult, and what I mean by the cult is the absolute baseline floor number of support, percentage of support, if that is 25 or 30%, you can almost stick a fork in Trump when it comes to winning the nomination. Now, he's still going to be a major problem in the general election. But that number is unknowable. It is unknowable. Is it 25 or 30, or is it 40, 45, <laughs> or is it somewhere in the middle? If I, if you had a gun to my head, I'd say it's probably somewhere in the middle, which means we're headed for World War I trench warfare, where if Trump is in the 35% uh, area when it comes to his cult and his percentage of the Republican base, then you know that's going to be very difficult, but not impossible to beat, and one-on-one, DeSantis would be able to do it. Again, it's not a knowable number right now. And that's a number that could change. That's a number. And, and CPAC having such pathetic attendance would kind of go to the idea that maybe the, that cult number is smaller than feared. Of course, Trump will also tell you, and it's, it's correct, that in many of these national polls, he is still clobbering DeSantis and everybody else in numbers that aren't that dissimilar to the straw poll. But there, there are potential other reasons for that. And there are other polls that contradict that, like the one I mentioned in the last episode in California, where, and that's where DeSantis was this weekend, 
where DeSantis is actually beating Trump fairly handily in a way that has shifted dramatically in just the last few months. So Larry Hogan is out. Nikki Haley doesn't do particularly well. but uh, And so all of that is potentially, and the, the CPAC crowd was terrible. So these are all data points that are at least hopeful when it comes to people like me who are on Team DeSantis. That doesn't mean that Team DeSantis doesn't have a lot of hurdles to overcome. I tweeted about them uh, this weekend. There are all sorts of hurdles, which I'm sure I will continue to talk about as we move along here, as long as this podcast exists and as long as DeSantis is a viable uh, presidential candidate. There are all sorts of problems that he's going to have, some of which also reared their head in the last few days, even as he was in uh, California. Uh, and, and, you know, one of them, as I've talked about many times before, is the fact that the news media is terrified of him. They really are. They are so much more afraid of Ron DeSantis than they ever really were of Donald Trump. If you remember back in 2015, 2016, Donald Trump was a novelty. Isn't this cute? Isn't this fun? This shiny object. He's great for ratings. He gives us great content. Wouldn't it be hilarious if he was president? No one ever thought this was going to happen. Blah, blah, blah. And then look what occurred. That was the basic media, especially non-right-wing media narrative, even though on the right wing, that was still the narrative to a certain degree. I don't think any of his major media supporters on the right wing thought he was really going to become president when that whole thing began. That was This was just a, a short-term fling that turned into a, a full-blown romance and a marriage, and, and, and now you can't get out of it. But I digress. The point here is, I have said continually, the mainstream news media fears Ron DeSantis way more, way more than they ever really did of Donald Trump. And that has been proven uh, in a couple different ways in just the last few days. Let me give you at least two examples. One occurs on MSNBC. And this is just, this is amazing on so many levels, but this is a show hosted by Michael Steele, a guy who I, I know a little bit, I've interviewed him before. I've spoken with him in person before. Former head of the Republican Party, you know, a, a very uh, intelligent guy. He happens to be black. Uh, I, you know, I liked Michael Steele, but he is completely sold out, uh, you know, for relevance to stay on MSNBC. And he he was talking about Donald Trump and CPAC. Okay, that's important to point out the context here, just to show you the desperation of some on the left when it comes to Ron DeSantis. DeSantis is not even the subject of this segment. The segment is on Donald Trump and CPAC. By the way, speaking of DeSantis and CPAC, you know, classic media double standard. DeSantis was getting attacked by people like Rick Wilson from the Lincoln Project, another guy who used to be a friend of mine before he completely sold out on this this whole uh, become a left winger in order to appeal to, to Trump haters. But he was attacking DeSantis for not showing up to CPAC because he was afraid of Trump. Of course, if he had shown up, then he would have been criticized for, you know, swimming around in the muck with, with the, the cult members that have become those that dominate CPAC. I mean, you can't win for losing. So no matter what, they're going to attack DeSantis. If he goes to CPAC, if he doesn't go to CPAC, whatever. But again, the point of this is the clip I'm about to play for you is about Trump and CPAC and the guest, Michael Beschloss. Now, Michael Beschloss has completely lost his mind or maybe more accurately has just decided he's just going to let his true self come out. 
because Michael Beschloss for decades has been used mostly by NBC as this esteemed historian person who's very measured in his thoughts and his words and very credible. And, you know, because he's an academic and a historian. And this is a guy who is very serious and we should really listen to him. And recently he has just gone off the freaking deep end when it comes to Republicans in general and Donald Trump in particular. But here he hijacks this segment on Donald Trump and CPAC to go on this bizarre, gratuitous, and totally inaccurate attack on Ron DeSantis, whose name he doesn't even seem to know. He calls him Rick DeSantis and then refers to him as a Mussolini character. Here's what that sounded like uh, this past Saturday on MSNBC. Our historian's perspective, what we're about to witness is Trump, with Trump is something unprecedented. He's still facing multiple investigations uh, as this 2024 race gets underway. So how do you think um, this plays into the narrative of his uh, efforts to become not just the nominee, but the next president of the United States with all of this legal baggage hanging over his head? We haven't seen anything like this in history before. No, we have not. We haven't seen a president potentially indicted like this and maybe dealing with serious multiple indictments from various places, uh, various uh, judicial agencies. So that's something we haven't seen before. And even Donald Trump, who has the survival abilities of a cockroach, I'm not sure if he can withstand Uh, If he is potentially indicted, and we don't know that this is going to happen, but let's say in three different venues at the same time, you know, that's a lot to ask of anyone, including someone who uh, is in his late 70s and may not be the most physically fit person uh, of that age that I have ever seen. So you've got that. But the even more dangerous thing, Stacey and Michael, is that, you know, people who try to get a nomination in parties you know, do it by trying to appeal to what they think will work. Well, look what Rick DeSantis has done in Florida. He was known as sort of a nondescript uh, political leader, member of Congress. Suddenly, he really has tried to turn himself into sort of a local Mussolini in Florida with the book banding and the brutal tactics. And even this week, this suggestion that bloggers have to register with the state for the honor of writing about the governor and other other political leaders. We have to call this what this is. This is fascism and authoritarianism that goes even beyond what Trump has talked about. That's what he thinks is going to work in that party. And in a way, that's the scariest thing of all. I thought- now, that whole bit would be insane if it was from the worst MSNBC commentator possible. But again, this is a guy, Michael Bachelos, who we've been told by the mainstream news media to respect and listen to for decades. And here he is lying about DeSantis. It's all a made-up narrative. He's referring to him as a Mussolini character, and he doesn't even know his name. Now, look, I, I slip it up in names all the time. You say things you don't realize you said. You can't correct it live on the air. But how do you call Ron DeSantis Rick DeSantis? And doesn't that kind of hit your credibility when it comes to the other stuff you're saying about him if you can't even get his name right? But the main point of this is, this is how afraid they are. DeSantis isn't even close to being a candidate yet. He's not going to be a candidate, assuming that he is, for at least another three months. 
and they are already this terrified. And it's not just MSNBC. It is not just Michael Beschloss. John Oliver. John Oliver on uh, <laughs> on HBO. And I like John Oliver as a comedian. I think he's a funny guy. At times he's smart. He, you know, he does even sometimes do, le- I would call legitimate investigative journalism. I mean, I know that's pathetic and maybe a, a great indication of the death of journalism that an HBO comedian oftentimes does a better job examining stories and getting to the truth than the real so-called mainstream news media does. But he's obviously a liberal and sometimes he's very wrong. And his most recent show was devoted almost entirely to Ron DeSantis. Again, a guy who is not a candidate for president, not a candidate for president <laughs> and isn't even close to declaring. Although I'll be clear. I believe he's running. He's made, you know, it's pretty damn obvious. He's going to run unless something dramatic happens, but to be clear, he's not officially a candidate. And the entire episode on HBO of his show last week tonight was devoted to Ron DeSantis in in-depth, gratuitous attacks, most of which I found to be bizarre, some of which are actually complimentary to DeSantis, some of which are antiquated. Like, for instance, uh, oh, I got I, 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 I have to take it. I have to digress here for a second before I get into to John Oliver, because one of the things he uses to attack DeSantis is Carrie Lake, the, the woman who should have won the race for governor in Arizona and now has been uh, has a full-time job complaining about the election being stolen from her and uh, also basically sucking off Donald Trump, uh, which are go hand in hand, apparently. And uh, she he uses Carrie Lake's clip from last year where she talks about Ron DeSantis having big dick energy. Of course, she added Donald Trump into that because she didn't want to offend Donald Trump because I mean, Trump heard heard that his girlfriend, Carrie Lake, was talking about uh, Ron DeSantis having big dick energy and, sh- and he didn't get added to the list. Oh, that was going to be terrible uh, for Carrie Lake. But so, so Oliver uses this clip as if Carrie Lake, who now is exposing herself as a whack job, is a big Ron DeSantis supporter. Well, she's not. <laughs> she couldn't have made it more clear over the weekend at CPAC that she is all in, all in on Donald Trump. I mean, it was pathetic. It was sad. I mean, almost to the point of where you had to think, is this a parody where she's vacuuming the carpet before Trump came out to give his speech, kissing a photograph or a painting of of Donald Trump? Uh, I mean, I mean, I realize she's unemployed and her only hope for relevancy here is for Donald Trump to be the nominee and I guess to win the presidency unless she somehow decides to run for Senate in Arizona and wins in a three-person race, which I guess is is possible. But, you know, Carrie Lake is someone who I like on the on the point of she hates the media. She's a former news anchor. You know, Liz Abib knew her pretty well in Arizona. And she's very attractive. She's smart. She's obviously very good on camera. I thought she had potential. But ever since she blew that race by attacking John McCain voters, three days before the election, and then has been claiming, I believe, even though that that election was absolutely a crap show and an embarrassment, I don't believe it was stolen from her. I don't believe there's any evidence it was stolen from her. She lost by 17,000 votes. But she has become 
the biggest Trump sycophant on the planet. And during CPAC, folks, this I found this particularly funny because in the last episode of the podcast, I said that maybe the only solution here is to pay off Trump not to run, to bribe him not to run. Give him $25 million to drop out, $25 million if DeSantis wins the presidency, and, and hope for the best. That's really the only scenario since it looks like he's going to be healthy enough to run. Well, I found it particularly ironic and maybe telling that Carrie Lake told a story at CPAC that she had been offered a bribe to get out of politics. And <laughs> this was hilarious. She she did the bit where, you know, I don't know if I should tell this story. I wasn't going to tell this story, but now I'm going to tell you the story, which you always have to be very wary when, when a speaker says that, because there's no, nobody is deciding that on the fly in front of a, of a big crowd and, and, you know, national streaming audience that just doesn't happen so she it's an act and so she tells the story of what sounds like someone coming to her house and offering her this great job with a lot of money and you know on a board or whatever and that she describes it as a bribe for her to get out of politics and i'm thinking there's only two scenarios here either she's making this completely up which is possible or she's become so paranoid and so delusional, she just passed off a great gig. Grey's Anatomy, the most iconic binge-worthy drama, is back, along with answers to the biggest cliffhangers. Will Teddy survive? Will Joe and Link finally find happiness together? Meredith returns along with fan faves like Arizona. You can now stream every episode of Grey's ever on Hulu and new episodes next day. Watch the season premiere of Grey's Anatomy Thursday at 9, 8 central on ABC and stream on Hulu. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. For no reason, because she thought somehow this was a bribe to get her out of politics, which, by the way, she's not in politics. She, she lost. I mean, but this is this is the disease that happens when you become this close to Donald Trump. All right. Anyway, back to to John Oliver. So he uses Carrie Lake as an example of of how terrible DeSantis is, because anybody who you know, any woman who goes up there and says that DeSantis has big dick energy, I guess, is disqualifying. Uh, to be uh, president or anything else for that matter. But so Oliver goes off on this rant, this very, very, very long, detailed rant. And it even gets reported on as a news story. The Hollywood Reporter, again, it's an entertainment outlet, but they do some serious news. And sometimes it's not even from the left, by the way. They have the, a few conservatives who are stealth, stealth conservatives who write for the Hollywood Reporter. I know at least one of them. Anyway, the Hollywood Reporter writes a news article about what John Oliver does on Ron DeSantis. And this is hilarious, folks, in so many ways. So here's the headline in The Hollywood Reporter. John Oliver takes on Ron DeSantis, embracing Donald Trump's nickname, Meatball Ron. <laughs> this is a news story. So first of all, Oliver kind of proving my point that DeSantis is way more threatening, way more dangerous than Trump ever was. 
Oliver actually embraces Donald Trump, says he's still got it. On the nickname thing, he says, Meatball Ron is great. And the subheadline here is, I hate to say it, but Trump's still got it. The last week tonight, host quipped, it's perfectly stupid, childish, and hurtful in a way that's genuinely difficult to articulate. So he's siding with Donald Trump because he wants to attack DeSantis with this meatball Ron thing, which some people, I think, not without reason, have said that that sounds like an anti-Italian thing, right? He's he's Italian, DeSantis. Italians like meatballs or spaghetti. Meatball Ron. Doesn't that sound anti-Italian? But I guess not. I guess when it comes to Ron DeSantis or a Republican, you're allowed to do whatever you want. But here's what the Hollywood Reporter wrote about this. John Oliver spent most of Sunday's last week tonight talking about Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, whom he called Business Fred Flintstone. I don't even understand what that means. He started off by mentioning DeSantis's new book, The Courage to Be Free, joking, by the way, I have a gift for our studio audience. Look under your seats. The gift is, it isn't here. You don't have to read it. You're welcome. Really? Wow. Okay, this is news, folks. This is a news story. Discussing the fact that DeSantis is likely gearing up for a 2024 presidential bid, Oliver noted that one of his rivals would be Donald Trump, which history has shown is no easy task. Oliver also noted how many commentators are calling him Donald Trump with a brain. That's DeSantis, Donald Trump with a brain, opining that comment is not, quote unquote, meaningful. It's like saying that new restaurant is better than the chicken pot pie that fell on a sidewalk, Oliver said. Yeah, it is, but you're not really giving me much useful information there. Oliver also brought up a story by a former classmate of DeSantis. This is really rich, folks. Listen up. Oliver brought up a story by a former classmate of DeSantis. Now, it doesn't say who the classmate is. doesn't say where they went to school. I'm going to guess Yale, and I'm going to explain why I'm going to guess Yale and why Yale is a problem uh, as we go forward here. But let me go back to the story. So former classmate of DeSantis who shared that the future governor would tell his dates that he liked Thai food but would pronounce it thigh. If they can corrected him, he would make up an excuse and leave because he, quote, didn't want a girlfriend who corrected him, according to this unnamed classmate. Oliver said, quote, if that is true, by the way, if that is true, <laughs> you're doing an, an entire bit on this on an HBO show, but okay. If that is true, wow. Just imagine being on that date. Oliver then went into a scenario imagining how that might have gone with the date ultimately left with left with the check and the single greatest first date disaster story of all time. All right, this is completely made up. We don't know where it happened. We don't know where it happened. We, we don't know if this is a first-hand story, second-hand story, third-hand, or just completely made up. We also... Think about how insane this is on on its face that some comedian on HBO is talking about vaguely about this idea that DeSantis would test dates to see what they would correct him on the pronunciation of Thai food and that this was somehow a trick he used to get rid of women who might have the gall to correct him. I mean, there's so many layers of insanity here. I can't even go through them. 
I mean, I, there's first of all, he's not in college anymore. I mean, let me just pretend this is true, <laughs> which which there's no evidence of it. There, there's true that it's true. Let's pretend it is. Who the hell cares? This is the best you've got. This is the best you've got. And this goes on HBO and then in the Hollywood Reporter as if it's a true story with no backing, no substantiation, no name. Again, no who, no, no, you know, where did it happen? Who did it happen to? What's your source? What's the bias of the source? And let, let's, let me mention the thing about Yale again. This reminds me so much of the Brett Kavanaugh problem, right? So when Brett Kavanaugh got in trouble with the bogus Christine Blasey Ford story, right? What was the next thing that came forward? A story out of Yale reported by Ronan Farrow and Jane Mayer about this poor girl at Yale who had some guy put his dick in her face. That that must have been Brett Kavanaugh. And I said at the time, I didn't believe that story for many reasons. It sounded like an urban legend. But because what do you got when you got a bunch of classmates from Yale? You have a whole group of people. That's where DeSantis went. That's where Kavanaugh went. You have a whole bunch of people who are very successful with access to media and what have you. They're automatically taken seriously because they went to Yale. They're all leftists and they all have a huge incentive to come up with some sort of story to discredit a hated right-wing figure. This is, this is not difficult to figure out. So you basically have a pool of people who can all call themselves classmates of Ron DeSantis or classmates of Brett Kavanaugh who are incentivized to make crap up about him and they will be taken seriously because they went to Yale. And no one will ever mention the fact that, oh, by the way, they're far-left liberals with a huge, massive self-interest and political bias in attacking a Brett Kavanaugh or a Ron DeSantis. And so the, the Yale thing is going to be a problem. But I think that this John Oliver story is, is classic because here we have a situation where they are so terrified of Ron DeSantis. They're just making crap up. They, this is the best they can come up with. They, they are so desperate for anything that this incredibly poorly sourced story about how he would go on dates. By the way, even if there's any truth to this, it probably happened one time. <laughs> it's in college. <laughs> He's married to a fantastic woman who might be his greatest weapon, who, by the way, happens to be uh, enduring cancer and who uh, speaks incredibly eloquently about what a great guy Ron DeSantis is, her, his wife, Casey. So, I mean, if this is the best they've got, which, you know, I I sarcastically tweeted about this, then boy, oh boy, Ron DeSantis is in pretty darn good shape. If this is the best they've got. And the bigger issue here is, okay, so why are they doing this? I mean, this is so transparent. And you could even argue that this might be the best thing to happen to Ron DeSantis. In the bizarro world that is the Republican base these days, one of the greatest things that can happen to you is to be attacked by the right people on the left, because then you are presumed to be the real deal. You're presumed to have street cred. And and in this case, I actually think there's a lot to that because this does not happen unless they are really afraid of you. They are really afraid of you. And they so desperately want Donald Trump to be the nominee for so many reasons. 
but they are so afraid of Ron DeSantis because they know he's going to be, if ever elected, way more effective than Donald Trump. But that's only the surface of why they're afraid. I think the real reason why they hate DeSantis so much is that, and, and, and this is something that even I don't point out enough when it comes to why people ought to consider supporting Ron DeSantis if you if you don't want a second Joe Biden term. Here's the real value of what Ron DeSantis did. If there was no Ron DeSantis in Florida during COVID, to this day, we would not be able to have proven what a fraud the COVID reaction was. Let me repeat that because it's incredibly important. If Ron DeSantis had been like Larry Hogan and done what Donald Trump wanted him to do and never shifted course, which he did very quickly, if Ron DeSantis had gone down the lockdown Larry route or the Mike DeWine in Ohio route, with another bogus Republican governor, if he had done that, we would never have the evidence to be able to prove that the COVID panic, the lockdowns, the shutdowns, the school closings, the sports closings, the mask mandates, everything else, if, if that had not been the case, if Ron DeSantis has not stood up and done what he did and had the courage to stick by it despite enormous media attacks, people forget how much the media attacked Florida when they shifted course. If Ron DeSantis had not done what he did, we would to this day still be forced to live under the fraud and the delusion that the COVID shutdown worked. It was because of Florida. Now, it shouldn't have been because of Florida. Georgia actually opened up before Florida. South Dakota never shut down. But the media could discount South Dakota. It's rural and small. And Georgia's a big state, but not a major state. And maybe that was just a fluke. But Florida is a major state. It's geographically and demographically incredibly diverse. It got attacked more than any other state by the news media because they so desperately wanted Florida to fail, and Florida didn't fail. And Florida's stats, when you, especially when you adjust them for age, because obviously they're the oldest or one of the oldest states in the country, actually did better than average, despite all the bullcrap. And that's why Gavin Newsom is driven crazy by Ron DeSantis in Florida. DeSantis even began his speech the other day uh, here in Southern California at the Reagan Library by quipping that, you know, your governor is very concerned about what's happening in Florida. So I had to come by and figure out what's going on here in California, where you obviously all have a lot of problems. I mean, he was he was joking about, as he does without even mentioning his name, about how Newsom is obsessed King Newsom here in California is obsessed with Ron DeSantis. Why? Because DeSantis single-handedly shattered his charade on COVID. Shattered it. And that's why Newsom is obsessed. And that's why the media hates him. Because without Ron DeSantis, they could still be playing this game today. And it would be far, far easier for them to do it again in the future. Florida single-handedly, DeSantis almost single-handedly, has made it very, very difficult, if not impossible, for this to ever happen again in the way that it did in 2020. And for that alone, DeSantis ought to be revered among conservatives. And and among non-Trump fans, he is in certain circles. Is that going to be enough to carry him 
to a brutal nomination victory, I, I still have my doubts. But that's a huge part of the reason why I support DeSantis and why I think it's so incredibly important that he de- somehow defeat Trump in this emerging nomination battle. But that's the real reason why they hate him. And that's, and that's going to be a problem. No question about it, but it's not going to be a problem necessarily in a Republican primary because you know, the, it appears as if Fox News Channel is on his side. And the more he gets hate from the left wing media, the more his credibility rises among Republican voters. And that's got to drive Donald Trump crazy. Again, I'm sounding more optimistic than normal. I've not changed my position in the big picture of how things are likely to turn out. I'm just telling you the way things are. Uh, today and why things are happening the way that they are. Now, on the Democratic side, there's some more polling indicating that Joe Biden is incredible, or not himself, but his his potential 2024 run is incredibly unpopular when it comes to Democrats. One recent poll has only 37% of Democrats saying that they are excited about Joe Biden running in 2024. 37% for an incumbent president who just scored what was perceived to be a victory in the midterms, at least in comparison to what the expectations were. 37% for a guy who's 80 years old. And obviously that's the main reason why. People are understandably concerned about, one, how he would do in a re-election campaign at 81 years old, but how we also would do as president at 84, 85 years old, especially given the fact that he's already showing signs that he's not all there all the time. So this has created a very interesting dynamic. Democrats in the media are in a tough bind here when it comes to what to do about Joe Biden. It's obvious Biden wants to run for reelection. Uh, you know, it, he's I mean, anybody would. It, no one gives up this kind of power. It's amazing in retrospect what happened in 1968 with Lyndon Johnson. But he's the only one in modern history that was president, could have run again and decided, you know what, uh, I'm going to take a pass. Uh, and that was because of the mostly the Vietnam War. Um, but the reality here is Biden w- is going to want to run. No one wants to give up that kind of power. He's got what else is he going to do at the age of 81 years old? And. What are the alternatives? See, that's the thing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. I mean, how do you run against a fairly in Democratic mindset, a fairly a successful president who's an incumbent? I mean, Ted Kennedy ran against Jimmy Carter uh, in 1980. 
I think actually banged him up quite a bit and probably helped lead Ronald Reagan's victory in 1980. But that was a very rare circumstance. It's incredibly rare for a incumbent president of either party to get a serious challenge. But the, I mean, this is as wide open as, as, as you could possibly ask for. I mean, this is incredibly tempting for somebody to run against Joe Biden. That's what the fascinating part of this is, folks. This is massive opening. There's this huge portion of the Democratic Party that is is quietly, although increasingly agitated, to say, hey, maybe somebody else should step to the table here. But who could that be? Because the most likely scenario is, well, who's the vice president, right? Well, Kamala Harris is not going to run against Joe Biden to be the nominee. That's just not going to happen. It would be a disaster in every possible way. So if Biden decides to run, which I believe for sure he will, barring some massive health issue, if the Biden decides to run, it ain't going to be Harris. So then who could it be? I cannot, it's, I, it's hard to imagine that some, that no one is going to take this opportunity to make a name for themselves. Not one member of the Senate, not one member of Congress. I mean, cause you, it is a golden opportunity, not necessarily to win the nomination, but to really make a name for yourself and potentially set yourself up for a run the next time around. I mean, that is, it's, I mean, that's going to be remarkable if nobody takes the advantage of that opportunity because it is clearly there. Now, there's been a lot of talk about, well, what about Gavin Newsom? California, John, you're, you're king there. He wants to run for president for sure. That's why he's been going after Ron DeSantis. And isn't this a proxy battle be, between the two people who, who may end up being the nominees? I have never bought into this idea that Gavin Newsom could be the Democratic nominee. And if he was, as long as the, the, the opponent was DeSantis, I would be thrilled with that. Thrilled. You tell me right now, it's DeSantis, Newsom, and, I, and, and you say, but, but Zig, you got to give up um, at least uh, one or two fingers. Uh, and I'll say, well, which ones? Uh, pinkies? Sure. I'm, I'm done. Give me uh, two pinkies? I'll give up two pinkies for it to be DeSantis versus, uh, well, maybe not only one pinky since I use the interlocking grip in my golf swing. But okay, so one pinky. I'll give my left pinky for sure. Uh, if it'll be DeSantis versus Newsom, because I believe DeSantis would crush Newsom, crush him. But I was never believed that Newsom was well positioned to take on Biden for the nomination. One, he's already said he wouldn't do it. Not that that matters anymore. But two, um, there's a new poll out in California, California, where, by the way, his approval rating is actually one point underwater, which is amazing. A guy who just won by... 19%, 18% against a non-opponent, guy no one ever heard of with no money in a state with 40 million people. So I actually think it was an embarrassing victory for Newsom in, in this state with no Republican Party to not even get uh, close to 60% of the vote. He actually did. He actually won by less than DeSantis did in Florida, which is obviously a purple state, not a deep blue state. Maybe it's more a red state now that thanks to DeSantis, but I digress. The point here is in California, there's a new poll out from Quinnipiac, the polling institute I once worked for for about 15 minutes. Newsom only has the support of 22%, 22% of Democrats in, in California who want him to run for president. 22%. 
the vast majority of Democrats, Democrats in California, do not want Gavin Newsom to run for president. It's almost <laughs> not quite. It's actually worse for Newsom in California to run for president than it is nationally among Democrats who are concerned about a Biden run and would like to see somebody else potentially get into the race. So when you don't have any support in your home state, I really don't see how it, how is that going to work in, in, in places like New Hampshire or South Carolina? Uh, I mean, Iowa apparently is being sidelined by the Democrats. It doesn't, is not going to matter nearly as much anymore, but I, I just don't see how is that going to work outside of California? I mean, Newsom's all whole brand is about California, 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 which ought to scare the living daylights out of anybody who's been paying attention. But if you don't even have remotely the support of your own party in California and they don't uh, think that you ought to be running for president, then I don't see how you can possibly make it work against an incumbent, even if he's 80, 81 years old. So I don't see who the the name is that's going to do this. You know, Joe Manchin kind of, the, the Democratic senator from West Virginia, kind of sort of implied he was thinking about it. That would be interesting. I don't think he would win. That would be interesting if Joe Manchin decided to run against Joe Biden. But somebody running against Joe Biden is significant on so many levels. Let me just give you an example of of why that is potentially significant. One, if you're a Republican, you want the incumbent to have to run against somebody uh, because it definitely creates division and damage. There's an interesting scenario that someone presented to me in New Hampshire, and this is probably getting way ahead of the game, but this is the kind of things I think about as we as we move forward here. Let's say that there is no opposition to Joe Biden, and he's running up opposed, so doesn't have to run a campaign. Well, that gives the option for for someone to run a uh, a, a campaign purely for publicity or to make a a stance on principle. And specifically, that person could be Robert F. Kennedy Jr., who obviously has the Kennedy name and has become known as the anti-vax person. And let's take a a place like New Hampshire. Uh, You know, I've been told from people who are close to him that Robert Kennedy Jr. is thinking about putting his name on the ballot in New Hampshire, which in theory... Now, this is this is all in theory. If he puts his name in, on the ballot in, in a place like New Hampshire or elsewhere, and it's a place where you're allowed to vote for either party. Now, New Hampshire's rules are a little bit complicated, but if you're undeclared, you can decide to declare for either party you want and vote in the primary. My, where I'm going with this is if, let's say, RFK Jr. decides to run an anti-vax campaign, that could theoretically theoretically harm uh, Ron DeSantis. And here's why, because you got a lot of anti-vax people who might be into, you know, so upset with Trump over Operation Warp Speed that they would actually vote against him. And since DeSantis has been pretty strong and when it comes to studying the impact of the vaccines and being against the mandates, that he would be a place where these people might go. Well, if RFK Jr. is an option, and I've even spoken to some people who are in this camp, and they are absolutely of the belief that if RFK Jr. is is running, they're going to vote for him, regardless of what party it is. If they have the ability to do so, they will. So these are things that are potentially minor, but they're all sorts of, of 
situations that occur, but they, it only really gets traction if there's no other option on the Democratic side against Joe Biden. So somebody, I still believe somebody is probably going to step to the plate because that is just too juicy an opportunity. Yes, there's there's the potential damage of, okay, you're going up against an incumbent and your career could be harmed. But I think that the, the upside uh, is it far exceeds the downside for the right person. Who that is, I don't know. But this is, this is a decision that's going to have to be made pretty darn quickly because it's getting too late. Now, other political news. I just want to mention, because we ought to be doing a a countdown on this podcast, where the hell is John Fetterman? Senator from Pennsylvania, the news media continues their blackout on this issue, pretending that him being in the hospital for weeks at a time now because of severe depression, apparently caused by the impact of his stroke, where he is unable to do his job. Although they're still claiming, this is the really amazing part, his staff put out a a notice that he actually actually has co-written legislation <laughs> while in the hospital suffering from severe depression. Well, that doesn't even seem logistically possible. So it's either a lie or some staff member is doing that, which is highly inappropriate, if not totally wrong. But the main point here is the news media is pretending as if John Fetterman just elected being in the hospital for severe depression for weeks at a time is not alarming, not problematic, doesn't indicate that they lied to us during the actual campaign, which just was four months ago, about what the real impact on his health would be of the stroke and whether or not he would actually be able to do the job, something that many media outlets went out of their way to assure us that, that he would be able to. And so it, it, it's just classic. It is classic. If this was a, reversed and Fetterman was a Republican and he had just been, been elected on the MAGA uh, you know, platform. If he was a Donald Trump guy and he had a, had a stroke issue and had performed the way that he did in that debate, he would have get, gotten massacred. It would have been, the narrative would have been, he absolutely is not able to do the job. And then see, we told you so. He's not on the job. He's in the hospital. There would not have been this idea that somehow, I've never, it's amazing to me. We've gotten to this point where if you claim severe depression, that it's almost like all bets are off. All hands are off. You can't attack somebody for severe depression. Well, it doesn't really matter what the reason is. You can't do the job. You're not on the job. And obviously from a physical standpoint, he's able to get up and walk and you know function, right? Presumably. So he should be on the job. Tough it out, dude. Depression sucks. I've suffered from it myself. But the idea that this is, this is a reason for you on a brand new job of this importance to be able to sit it out for weeks at a time, and the media is fine with that? No way they would do that if he was a Republican, especially if he was a MAGA Republican. And so we'll keep an eye on that as that story continues to develop or not develop because the news media is just pretending as if it doesn't exist. The clip that I referred to at the very beginning of the podcast episode, which belongs in a museum, occurred on HBO's Bill Maher show. And I continue to say it is absolutely amazing and such an indication of the pathetic media journalism world in which we now live, where Bill Maher, on such a frequent frequent occasion, is the person who stands up for the truth and what is right and for basic common sense and logic. Bill Maher is someone who I have hated for years. He's because he's so incredibly liberal and oftentimes deceitful, in my opinion, sometimes funny, 
I've always thought he was smart, but I always figured, you know, especially when in his younger days, his entire motivation in life was to get laid or to get high or both at the same time. And, and how is this guy being taken seriously as a political commentator? Well, now <laughs> this is how far we've fallen where Bill Maher is the guy who, who can be ca- most counted on to actually tell it like it is and bring truth to the surface. And boy, did that happen in a spectacular way on an issue that I have spoken about numerous times on this podcast and what I think is, if not the most important issue facing the United States of America today, it is clearly the most underrated issue facing us. And I mean that sincerely. The shifting of the word equality to equity, as I have said continually, is the most insidious and destructive thing that has happened, especially in a stealth manner, in the modern history of this country. Because equality of opportunity is everything America was supposed to be about. Equity of outcome is exactly the opposite. But the word sounds similar and left and the media have very deftly taken equality and turned it into equity. Equity of outcome is the death of America. And Bill Maher was interviewing independent slash Democrat slash socialist Senator Bernie Sanders, who, by the way, it should be pointed out, came within a whisker of winning the Democratic presidential nomination in 2020. People forget that. Uh, but he came incredibly close. An avowed socialist came that close to winning the nomination in 2020. And if it hadn't been for South Carolina taking uh, Joe Biden's ass out of the fire, then Bernie Sanders probably would have been the Democratic presidential nominee. So Sanders was on Bill Maher on HBO and very, very softly with kid gloves, but in a way that was very, very effective. Bill Maher asks Bernie Sanders about this issue of equality versus equity. And there are a couple of astonishing elements of this. First of all, Sanders does not appear to even know what the heck Bill Maher is talking about. And then he incredibly sheepishly acknowledges that Bill Maher is actually correct. And here's what that sounded like on HBO. Are we confusing equality of opportunity with trying to guarantee equity and outcomes? Okay, that's interesting because I think this word equity has come into the language in the last few years. And before that, we didn't hear it a lot. And I think a lot of people hear equity and they hear equality. It's the same word. And it's not the same word in the same concept. So how would you differentiate between equity and equality? Well, equality, we talk about... uh I don't know what the answer to that is. Come me to think of it, you know, uh, equality is equality of opportunity. All right? We live in a society we want all people right. to have whatever color your skin is. Equity, I think, is more guarantee of outcome, is it not? I yeah, think, I think so. I think that's okay. Fine. So, which do you come? Which side do you come down on? Uh, equality. Equality. Uh, yeah. Okay. All right. Boys, any comment on that one? I just don't know if that's the if that's the definitional difference. I honestly do not think that I'm overplaying that clip. That clip belongs in a museum. It tells you everything you possibly need to know about the nature of our media, journalism, where we're heading. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. 
More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And the issue of race and equality versus equity and the ignorance of Bernie Sanders, a guy who almost became president, (laughs) and the fact that it took Bill Maher to raise this issue on HBO. I mean, right there, you could almost write a book, or at least I could, about that one clip. And it's gotten some play online, but not nearly enough, because that's the smoking gun right there. Even Bernie Sanders is willing to admit after... (laughs) After you have to educate him on the topic, that yeah, we're right. You're right. It should be equality, not equity. By the way, you know what this really should tell Republicans is how impactful this issue could be politically if you did it right. I mean, if even Bernie Sanders live on the air can be convinced that it should be about equality, not equity, then that's a pretty good sign that that's an issue that can cause a lot of damage among not conservative voters. Certainly independents and left-leaning voters are going to go, wait a minute, yeah, equity of outcome, that's not us. We're the equality people. I mean, even Bernie Sanders is still there. That shows the potency of the issue and how it is that I believe that Republicans and conservatives are dropping the ball, not all of them, but many, by not making this a huge issue. This is the issue. This is who we are as a people. If we're really all about equity of outcome, which the media desperately wants us to be, and the media effectively does. I mean, the media, almost everything about the media, especially the news media, is about equity of outcome. And it's always equity in the favor of people who are not straight white males. Every group that's not straight white males gets more than their fair share, just to be safe, (laughs) just a virtue signal. So whether it's the faces you see on the news or the faces you see in commercials or the faces you see on sports broadcasts, uh, almost universally, not totally, but almost universally, you're going to see their vision of equity, which is making sure we have enough uh, faces of color, enough faces that aren't straight, uh, enough faces faces that aren't men, so that we are living in an and an equity of outcome world that no one can criticize us for not having equity. Forget about the idea of equal opportunity and letting people battle it out and the best person wins and you put the most qualified person in the job. No, no, no. And that's, by the way, you know, whenever you have equity of outcome, whether it's in the media or whether it's in police or whether it's in any other realm of life inherently, you're going to lower the standard. You have to lower the standard because you're inherently saying it's not about merit. You're saying it's about demographics. 
And so it's not saying that those demographics aren't capable of doing a job. It's a pure numbers game. And it's purely about what it is you're using to determine who should get the job. You're not determining it based upon merit or excellence or potential. You're doing it based upon the signal that it will send about equity. And so that clip, that's my favorite clip of the year so far. And that's going to be tough to beat. Very tough to beat. Now, there was another clip from that very same HBO show that I want to play for you because it's also gone viral, maybe more viral than the the Sanders Marr clip. This is a clip from another guest that was on the program, Russell Brand, who's a funny comedian, British. He was, I guess he was married to Katy Perry for, for a while. I don't know if they were married or engaged or whatever, but he was with Katy Perry and that apparently ended very badly. Um, he's been an actor in a few things. I think he's a talented guy. He's very far left. I mean, very far left, but he has become very outspoken again against the, the COVID insanity and specifically also against the vaccines. And the issue came up, uh, Fox news channel and the dominion lawsuit where it has been revealed that Fox news channel hosts, were behind the scenes saying that they know that the 2020 election was not stolen and that they think it's crazy that they have to, I'm paraphrasing, they have to go on the air and pretend that it happened because otherwise their face of customer support, their their viewers are going to revolt because they're members of the Trump cult. Again, these are my words, paraphrasing what we have learned from the Dominion lawsuit. And I have said that that's outrageous, but I've also said that the left does exactly the same thing, just on different issues than on who won the 2020 election or whether or not the 2020 election was somehow rigged. Well, Russell Brand got into a battle with John Heilman from MSNBC, who usually is usually on Morning Joe uh, on MSNBC. And Heilman's, of course, a liberal. And R- Russell Brand goes after John Heilman pretty hard on this exact issue of, okay, Uh, What about you people on MSNBC? And I loved Brand's enthusiasm and where his heart was and the fact that he had the guts to go after MSNBC and to say, look, it's not just Fox News Channel. It's both MSNBC and Fox News. And it's basically everybody still playing part in this this very corrupt media game. So I love the big picture of this, although I have some problems with the specifics of how Brand went about it. But here's about a, a two and a half minute clip uh, of that battle where Russell Brand uh, basically goes off on John Heilman of MSNBC. You actually hear Bill Maher kind of sticking up for MSNBC here, which will get to one of my concerns about the way Brand did it. But here first is that clip as it aired on HBO. John, I've not known you long, but mm. I love you already. But I have to say that it's, <laughs> it's disingenuous to claim that the biases that are exhibited on Fox News are any different from the biases exhibited on MSNBC. It's difficult to suggest that's, that's... that these corporations operate as anything other than mouthpieces for their affiliate owners in BlackRock and Vanguard. And, and unless we start to embrace, and, and also, mate, like just spiritually, if I may use that word in your great country, we have to take responsibility. <laughs> for our own perspective. Right. I've been on that MSNBC, yeah. mate. It, 
there was right. propagandist nutcrackery yeah. yeah, on you're there. Not gonna, you, I went on the show called Morning Joe. Yeah. It was absurd the way they carried <laughs> Good on. Good morning, Joe. Yes. Yeah, was, I don't it. know what it was. It wasn't morning. There was no one called Joe there. No one could concentrate. They didn't understand the basic tenets of ju- journalism. No one was willing to stick up for genuine American heroes uh, like Edward Snowden. No one was willing to talk about Julian Assange and what he suffered trying to bring real journalism to the American people. And I think to sit within the castle of MSNBC throwing rocks oh. at Fox News is ludicrous. My friends, Make my MSNBC friend. better. My Make friend. MSNBC my great friend. again. My friend, I would love... I would... The moment... The moment... Right, the moment territory right. you can win on, Joe. Right, Russell. Russell, darling. Um, the moment that you give me a specific example... An actual example. Okay, I'll give you oh, one. Right, just wait. Wait, wait, wait. Just wait. Just specific example. How about? Wait, 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 let me tell you what the specific guy I'd like to hear of. I'd like to hear a specific example, a provable specific example of an MSNBC correspondent or anchor being on television saying something they knew was false and were saying behind the scenes to people, this is, I'm about to go out and we know that we know that the election wasn't stolen You've or something equivalent, but I will go, but I will go out, but I will go out on television and say the opposite. I will lie. When's I'll, my answer? Wait, wait, give, just give me, a, give me the specific example. I understand. Okay. Basic point. Give me a specific I, I, example. I, 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 all right. All I'm right. with you. I think it's a false equivalency, Russell. It's a it's false. No, it's I, not. I, That's I, your I, kind of bias. It's, 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 it's not about bias. It's a false equivalency because you don't <clears> actually know anything about any of these organizations you're talking about. Even on MSNBC ones. Big fucking deal. My darling, you, it was more than enough. You can't come up with such a carry You have a single, you have a single actual fact. Do you want an example? Do you want an example? The ludicrous, outrageous criticisms of Joe Rogan around ivermectin, re- deliberately referring to it as a horse non, medicine when they know it's an effective medicine. Yeah, that, that's what not Rachel a Maddow turning up on the TV non, saying, non-respons- if you take well, this vaccine, you're not going to get it, when it hadn't been clinically trialed to transition. You have to listen. Wait, Do you think you can improve America by determinedly and avowedly condemning Fox News without acknowledging that you're participating in the same game? I- now, again, I love that Russell Brand did this, and I love that it went viral and it was embarrassing to MSNBC and John Heilman. But I really didn't like the examples that Russell Brand gave. Now, he did try to go into this, this now famous or infamous clip where Rachel Maddow of MSNBC goes into great detail about how and why the vaccine stopped transmission, and she was completely and totally wrong. However, that's not the same thing. That's not the same thing, because I truly do believe that Rachel Maddow thought that at the time the vaccines stopped transmission. I believe that because at the time I thought the same thing. The data seemed to back that up. There seemed to be logic to that, and nobody was saying otherwise. You would have thought, <laughs> naively, that you know the people that produced the product would know whether or not it stopped transmission, or that it even tested whether or not it stopped transmission, which we now apparently know they never did. They never even bothered to test that. So I guess what what were they thinking at the time? Wow, boy, we really got lucky. This thing we didn't even test for stopping transmission somehow stopped transmission. Or were they being silent because they knew the real truth and they didn't want to upset the apple cart? I don't know. I'm much more cynical now about the vaccines than I was back in early 2021, which was when Rachel Maddow made that statement. And and so that's not the same thing. She didn't know it was a lie. What I would, though, say in the realm of COVID, I know for an absolute fact that 
especially after the first six months or so, there's nobody, almost nobody in the news media who really believed that mask mandates work. Nobody, nobody believed that. Anybody with half a brain. And I'm sure that, you know, as soon as the cameras were off, these people all took their masks off immediately. And yet they went on the air on every network, including some of the conservative networks where they were still virtue signaling about masks. And they would pretend that masks work. They would pretend that mask mandates were only a a one-sided issue, that there was no other side to that issue. So it was the, to me, the smoking gun is partly why I talk about masks a lot. It's not just because I hate it from a libertarian standpoint and I hate it when it happened to my daughter in school and I hate having to wear a mask and all that. To me, the real reason why I talk about masks as much as I do is it's the smoking gun about how wrong these people were, what their real motivations were, how they lied. And and that to me, if you understand what really happened with masks, you can better understand the entire COVID panic. And you can also better understand why it is that journalism is dead and why this is all so dysfunctional. But to me, masks are the better example. And eventually, vaccine transmission was also a good example. Like today, the, the, anybody who claims in the news media, but I haven't seen this very often, some politicians, left-wing politicians, like the mayor, not the mayor, the governor of New York, did so a few weeks ago, and we highlighted that on the podcast, where she's still claiming that vaccines stop transmission. Well, that's that's a lie that she ought to know is a lie. Either she's an ignoramus or she's just a liar. There is obviously errors of omission. And it's absolutely the case that there has been massive omission when it comes to the news media not articulating that, oh, by the way, we were wrong about vaccines stopping the transmission of COVID. And that has been outrageous. And it's had major impact, including the fact that Novak Djokovic can't play in the United States still to this day. I'll get to that momentarily. It's just unbelievable because he isn't vaccinated and the United States still hasn't changed its policy towards letting unvaccinated people into the country. That has happened because the news media has dropped the ball in an omission perspective from an omission perspective by not saying, hey, remember all that business we gave you about the vaccine stopping transmission? Well, they don't anymore. You want to get vaccinated? Fine. But the mandates no longer have any validity because that's the only theoretical validity for a vaccine mandate is that it stops transmission because otherwise you're only concerned about yourself and you ought to have control over your own health decisions. My body, my choice. Whatever happened to that? So, I mean, Russell Brand's really not designed for this. He's a comedian an actor. Again, I, I like the spirit. I like the general way place he was going, but I wish he had used better examples. And of course, there are other people who would also say that, you know, the, the Russian collusion hoax might've been a better example. Uh, I, I think there was some truth to the whole Russian investigation, the Manchurian candidate thing. Uh, Trump as a Manchurian candidate thing was always ridiculous and wrong. And I would like to believe that many on the left were still putting forward that lie when they knew it was a lie. Um, And of course, we just already played early on in this episode on MSNBC, Michael Beschloss lying his ass off about Ron DeSantis or Rick DeSantis, as he referred to him. So there were there are all sorts of examples from MSNBC lying 
in much the same way that Fox News Channel does. And of course, the whole basis of the lie is to not offend your audience. That's what it's all about. It's giving therapy to your audience, telling them what they want to hear and making sure that they don't hear anything that's going to really piss them off, offend them, or make them not like you anymore. Because then they might leave to go someplace else because now the customers have so many other options when it comes to political news and opinion content that they didn't have in the past. And so the inmates are running the asylum. I've said this many times, but it bears repeating. And so, you know, this to me was, it's interesting though. I I, I should probably be more optimistic uh, because Russell Brand doing this on HBO is an indication that the dam really is breaking. The dam really is breaking uh, more significantly than it has on the COVID insanity than at any other point in the last three years. And it's been a very interesting mix of people uh, for, who are non-conservatives who have been willing and able to stand up in big ways to help the dam start to crack. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily Daily bonuses. That should brighten your day, lo. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com. That's chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW Void were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Uh, Russell Brand is an interesting one. Bill Maher, uh, Tim Robbins, the actor, has been maybe the most prominent person to actually apologize for the insanity of COVID and how he's even admitted, which I think is the most underrated element of this whole issue. He's even admitted almost directly, that it was because of his hatred of Donald Trump that he did not see clearly on COVID until Trump was gone. That's my interpretation of what he said, but it's pretty darn close. Woody Harrelson on Saturday Night Live, another lefty actor. Uh, Joe Rogan, obviously, has become very prominent with his podcast and his stance against the COVID insanity. Kyrie Irving in the NBA got destroyed in numerous levels, I believe attacked on the whole anti-Judaism thing because he dared to not take the vaccine. Obviously, Elon Musk, uh, who buys Twitter and has changed the dynamic of, and he's a big reason why the dam has started to crack by buying Twitter and allowing free and open discussion of issues related to the COVID insanity has played a major role in this. None of these people are the ones that you necessarily would have picked or would have or predicted would be those that would stand up. And Novak Djokovic, obviously in the tennis world, has been a huge uh, supporter of vaccine freedom and has suffered greatly, probably more than anybody else, for not taking the vaccine. And I'm trying to figure out, is there anything that is consistent among these men? It's interesting that they are all men. There have been a few liberal women who have stood up, but none really to the to the level, or at least with the celebrity 
that these guys have. And I really can't think of very much. I mean, they're all various levels of liberal or not political. Um, but the only thing I can come up with is none of them are fat, which is probably not coincidental because if you're not fat, you don't have the same kind of fear of COVID. Some of them are not young, but you know, Bill Maher, Russell Brand, Tim Robbins, Woody Harrelson, Joe Rogan, Kyrie Irving, Elon Musk, and obviously Novak Djokovic. I mean, Musk isn't in great shape, but he's, he's not fat. Uh, and uh, so I, I do think that's an interesting coincidence given the, the uh, importance of obesity when it comes to COVID, as well as the prevalence of obesity in our general population. But the Novak Djokovic thing is unbelievable. And this, you won't talk about errors of omission. It is absolutely astonishing that this is still somehow an issue. That this, we are still now living in a world where the number one tennis player on the planet, number one ranked, Novak Djokovic, cannot play in tournaments scheduled in California, Indian Wells, and Miami, Florida. Florida! (laughs) He cannot get into the country legally. Now, of course, there are people who say, why don't you just go into Mexico and hop across the border because no one's going to check whether you're vaccinated if you go come in that way. Uh, Because, you know, it's not a rule. It's not a tennis rule anymore that you have to be vaccinated. He can't get into the country because the United States has not changed the rule yet. Despite the fact that we have known for over a year, (laughs) it's unbelievable. We have known for over a year that the vaccines do not in any way, shape or form stop transmission, which is the only rationale for a mandate like this. Uh, And so, you know, Novak Djokovic was trying to get an exemption to get into the country despite the fact that he's not vaccinated, the decision that certainly, in my view, has been vindicated in almost every possible way. And once again, other than John McEnroe, the entire sports media and tennis media establishment basically shrugs, and the rest of the news media ignores it. Let me give you a classic example. This is a tweet from Tennis Magazine. Tennis Magazine! which you would think has a huge incentive for the number one player in the world to come to the United States and be able to play in a way that, by the way, is going to be critical for him keeping his number one ranking. There's a pretty good chance that Novak Djokovic is going to lose his number one ranking because he can't get into the United States because he's not vaccinated. And this is the tweet that they put out to to tell the story of the fact that it now is clear after weeks of speculation that Novak Djokovic is not going to be able to play because he was not able to get an exemption from the U.S. federal government on the vaccine mandate. Tennis Magazine tweeted out, listen to this, folks. Novak Djokovic has chosen not to receive a COVID-19 vaccine, and the U.S. government has chosen not to relax its policy against unvaccinated individuals from entering the country. The world number one will not play Indian Wells. Now, now this is a classic case where stating facts is not really a good way to tell the story. <laughs> because what they just stated there is 100% factual. He's Joe, Novak Djokovic has chosen not to get the vaccine. The United States government has chosen not to relax its policy against unvaccinated individuals from entering the country. However, I would submit to you that if Tennis Magazine was not concerned about 
the woke police or concerned about uh, pharmaceutical advertising, that that is not the way that they would portray this story, nor is it the way that they should portray this story. And let me give you a, a pretty good analogy, which is actually kind of unfair to Djokovic. I'm actually being unfair to Djokovic in this analogy because I think it's it's the, the, the reality favors Djokovic more than this analogy would suggest, but it's that maybe make, makes it a better analogy. As I tweeted out, what if, uh, you know, there was a tweet that said that Colin Kaepernick has chosen not to stand for the national anthem and the San Francisco 49ers have chosen to cut him. No other further comment is necessary and will be given at this time. We're just going to let that out there and let it be and make no other comment, uh, no other context. That would never happen. We know that didn't happen. That's not the way that the media reacted to the Colin Kaepernick story. And that's an oversimplification of the Colin Kaepernick story. But that's basically what happened. He made a choice. And because of that choice and the fact that he sucked, the San Francisco 49ers made a choice. By the way, San Francisco 49ers, obviously, in literally the most liberal city in America. But I digress. The idea that you know Kaepernick was a, a target of a of a right wing smear campaign is ridiculous. He the main problem was he stunk, and he was also a problem politically. So he got cut and was never re-signed in in the NFL. Well, the analogy here is that was a choice that Kaepernick made, a political choice. I would argue that Djokovic is being forced to make a political choice to basically signal his virtue by getting on board to take the jab. He's refusing to do what we tell him, just like Colin Kaepernick refused to do what we're telling him to do, which is to stand for the national anthem. He's not getting in line. So therefore, you know, and that's not really what happened, but he's being punished. Well, that's not the left way the left-wing media portrayed it. This was outrageous. Kaepernick was standing up for his rights and your rights and civil rights and the rights of all Americans for free expression. Well, what about... My body, my choice. What about freedom of health decisions? What about the fact that he's right? <laughs> I mean, this is this is not a, a benign situation. This is not a situation where, you know, well, 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 he made his choice. That's what Chris Fowler said at the Australian Open when John McEnroe tried to push back when Djokovic won the Australian Open. And Fowler said, well, it, it, it was his choice. What, what, what do you mean it was his choice? <laughs> <laughs> the choice. First of all, the, the choice is to not do something in this situation, which is to not get an injection into your body that may or may not have a negative impact on you that you don't need, partially because you've had COVID twice, and we now know that natu- natural immunity is better than the vaccines. For, so, from every possible way, Djokovic is correct on this decision. The potential harm, the fact that he didn't need it, the fact that he's gotten COVID and now has natural immunity, which is better than the vaccine. And so the media just ignores all of this. And they just, you know, and even the tennis magazine, even tennis magazine is forced to pathetically say, well, you know, this is just the way the cookie crumbles. Nothing can be done here. Baloney. There's lots that can be done here. If, if the, if the left wing sports media was being remotely honest about this and had any soul whatsoever, and was being consistent with how they've handled other situations like Kaepernick, they would be championing Djokovic's cause, and they would be putting pressure 
on the Biden administration to change this rule. This is something that every American ought to know about. And and some Republicans have tried to make it an issue, but when the media just doesn't want to play, partially because they're bought and paid for by the pharmaceutical companies, just as Woody Harrelson joked about on Saturday Night Live uh, a week and a half ago, it's not going to happen. There's a total blackout here. This is a massive issue. It's it, 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 it's not just about Novak Djokovic, but can you imagine? I mean, all the, the things that become huge news in the sports media, the fact that they will just ignore this by and large is really incredibly telling. It's incredibly telling for how broken the news media is and, and how it is that the most obvious things now, the things that really impact real life, can just be ignored if it's not in the best interest or the self-interest or within the agenda of the mainstream news media. And so Novak Djokovic will likely lose his number one ranking and will not play in two major U.S. tennis events, which are going to suffer greatly, by the way, since he's the number one player in the world. And even those events, from what I've seen, they've pushed back slightly, saying, hey, we really like Djokovic to be able to play, but nothing comparison in comparison to what they would be doing if this was a cause that was acceptable within the liberal elite and within the media. Everyone's still afraid of it, even though everyone knows, everyone with a brain knows there's absolutely nothing wrong with either philosophically or from a practical standpoint with Novak Djokovic coming into the country without being vaccinated. Speaking of potentially the vaccines and their impact, I have been consistently very, 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 very hesitant to conclude that the vaccines are in a significant way causing major injury or death. However, I have also been very concerned and continuing to point out this excess death problem that the news media continues to completely and totally ignore, even more so than they do the Novak Djokovic issue. And about a month ago, I illustrated how it is that the first week in December of 2022, which was at the time the last week that we had full data for all those that had died in the United States, was very concerning because it was way higher than it should be if you subtract COVID deaths. And in my estimation, it was at least 3,000 deaths more than what you would have expected in a normal year minus COVID deaths, which made no sense, one, because we're back to normal, and there's no lockdown deaths. You could argue maybe are there deaths because of people that didn't get proper treatment during the lockdowns that are still now coming in today. I guess that's possible. But you would also have to consider the fact that over the last three years, we lost a million of our most vulnerable citizens to COVID, people who were very ill and very old to begin with. And those people were basically dying ahead of schedule. So you should have lo- lower excess deaths now than you had pr- prior to the COVID pandemic uh, being a huge deal. And so those numbers didn't make any sense to me. And I was simply asking for an explanation because I couldn't come up with a full one. I came up with a, a few possibilities. Well, we're about a month on now. And now we have basically full data for the last week of 2022 or the first week in 2023, basically what I would call the New Year's week. And I went back and I looked at the last four years of the number of people who have died in the United States during that week. Again, what I would call New Year's week, the end of one year, beginning of the next, depending on how the dates fell. And in case you don't know, 
you know, the CDC does a pretty darn good job of estimating week to week how many people are going to die based upon the demographics of the country at that time, the age of the average person, you know, the, the time of year. Obviously, it changes because of weather and flu seasons and all sorts of other things. But they have enough data where they're able to predict, usually within about a thousand, that's been my experience, within about a thousand deaths, they can pretty well predict what the expected number of people to die in any particular week should be in the United States. And unless something major happens, like a 9-11 or some catastrophe, those numbers are almost always within a very small variance, right around 100% of expected deaths. This was the main reason why I knew that the COVID uh, pandemic was real. I mean, there were some people at the beginning that were trying to claim that all these people were dying uh, you know, with COVID, not of COVID. And I, I did not believe that because the excess death numbers were telling a very, very different story. But now very few people are dying, certainly of COVID. Those that are dying now are certainly dying with COVID because they're very old. Even liberals are are acknowledging that now. But even if you accept the COVID deaths as completely real and because of COVID and therefore deaths that would not be expected in a pre-COVID world, the numbers are continuing to be very disturbing. And it's it's just amazing that this is not a major issue in the news media. So here's what I found. So in 2022, that would have been the end of 2019 beginning of 2022. So New Year's week of 2022. I'm sorry, New Year's week of 2020. So this is the first of the four years I looked at. The New Year's week of 2020, 2019, 2020. That's the time period I'm talking about here. Obviously, before there were any COVID deaths, this is just before COVID, 60,500 people died in the United States of America. So the first week before the pandemic of 2020, 60,500, which was right around what was expected within a few hundred, maybe a thousand of what the CDC had expected for total deaths in that week. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Then we go forward one year, 2021. And if you take the total number of deaths minus the COVID deaths, you get 62,000. So it's 1,500 more. It's a wide variance, but it's certainly understandable because that year, 2020, we had a lot of lockdown deaths, increase in drug use, suicides, lack of medical attention. Frankly, the fact that that number was only 1,500 more than it was the year before is 
is is astonishing on the on the positive side. So it certainly there were lots of potential explanations for why you had a small increase from 2020 to 2021. Then you fast forward one more year, and that's the end of 2021, beginning of 2022. You get 63,000 deaths. That's another thousand more than you had in the previous year. Now, again, we're still potentially dealing with lockdown lingering impacts. You also theoretically have people that have been taking the vaccines, uh, although the number of people took the vaccines in 2021, if it was really having that much of a major impact, you would think that that number would be greater than just a thousand more than it was the year before. But to be clear, my theory if the vaccines are impacting people in a negative way and causing deaths, that it's effectively still a lightning strike. It's not something that's happening regularly. It's just increasing the chances of getting struck by lightning for no darn good reason, especially if you're not in a vulnerable demographic when it comes to COVID. Well, now let's go forward one more year to this past end of December, beginning of January. So New Year's 2022, into 2023, the same exact week that I've looked at the three previous years. We are now up to, minus COVID deaths, a total of 65,500 deaths. That is 5,000 more deaths in that week than occurred in the same week before COVID in 2020, the end of 2019, beginning of 2020. 5,000 more despite the fact that in the ensuing period of time, we lost a million of our most vulnerable residents of the United States of America. Now, you can argue, well, John, hasn't the population increased? Not by much, especially when you lost a million people due to COVID or more than that. And so the, the population increase has not been very dramatic at all in those four years, certainly not enough anywhere close enough to explain 5,000 extra deaths. Uh, but but also, it's important to point out that our demographics have actually shifted because of those million people who died of COVID, almost all of whom were older, at average age at least 78 or 79. So there's no reason to expect that the deaths would have increased at all from the 2020 New Year's week, and they've increased 5,000. That's a huge number. It's way beyond any variance it's remotely normal when it comes to the CDC predicting the expected deaths for any particular week. Does that prove anything? No. Could it be flukish? Yes, except it's consistent with, with, which, with what is happening on almost a weekly basis. This is not a situation where as I look at the data, I go, well, you know what? The week previous, there were no, there was no increase in deaths or there was a decrease in deaths from four years ago. No, this is happening on a weekly basis, sometimes more, sometimes less. But this is actually seemingly, and I haven't tracked it to this level of detail, but it seems like it's actually on the increase that this is worse today in that particular week, that, that New Year's week, as I refer to it, than it was that first week in December that I talked about about a month ago on the podcast. Again, I don't know why this is happening, but I do know that with all the changes that are going on in our in our society and with everybody getting a vaccine shot that that is highly controversial and untested and unprecedented, the mRNA uh, shot, then that at least you ought to be asking questions. 
at least you ought to be asking questions. And instead, there's not a peep about this in the news media. And, you know, there are many people who are so invested in the idea that there's nothing wrong that every time I tweet about this, I get attacked. I don't know what I'm talking about. Well, just explain to me how this can be. How can this be so far outside the variance of the normal data and so consistent on almost a week to week basis? So I'll keep an eye on this and, and I'm, you know, I'm sure the media will continue to ignore it, but I see no change. I guess this is the main point I'm making here. I see no change in this trend that I referenced earlier in other episodes of the podcast. In fact, if anything, this trend seems to be getting stronger, and yet we still have no interest in the media finding out what the hell is really going on here. All right, um, a couple other stories before I run out of time on this episode of the podcast. I I wanted to mention the Alec Murdoch case in South Carolina. Uh, It's possible that you may not have heard about this, but if you've been watching, especially cable news over the last couple of weeks, you know all about this trial that just ended in the conviction of Alex Murdoch, a former rich lawyer in South Carolina from a very well-to-do family who was convicted of killing his son and his wife in a very bizarre and evil plan to distract from his own financial indiscretions. And, you know, this is an interesting story, and it's gotten an enormous amount of coverage on cable news. And what I want to add into this, because I do think it goes to the whole death of journalism theme of this podcast, is why is it, why is it that the news media was so obsessed with the trial of Alex Murdoch? Now, let's be clear. It's an interesting case. You got rich people. The whole thing began with a boat accident of a beautiful 19-year-old girl dying, uh, apparently maybe because of the the negligence or the actions of Murdoch's son. Uh, who he ends up killing, I think, directly because of this, because I think he thought he could get away with it because it would be seen as retribution because of the boat accident. Um, the reality here is that, uh, you know, he's guilty as hell. It was obvious he was guilty as hell. And, and you would think that in a situation where someone is guilty as hell and he was never known before any of this, that that wouldn't be much of a news story, right? I mean, okay, it's South Carolina, it's rural South Carolina. Um, and, you know, the news media, it's an interesting story. I get it. I get that it's interesting. My wife and I, have, you know, we watched Dateline in 2020 pretty religiously. And, you know, I would put this story until the trial. as kind of like a really solid Dateline. There's basically two types of Datelines. There's the the placeholder Datelines that are just basically there because they need something on a Friday night and the story is kind of cookie cutter and there's nothing that interesting about it. And then there are the good Datelines that really make people like the series and want to keep back and keep keep watching. And I would put the Murdoch case into the good Dateline category, but I would not put it into the category of stories that really beg from a news perspective to be warranting massive amounts of news media coverage of the trial that was going on uh, up until the end of last week in South Carolina. So what happened? Well, what happened here, I think, is interesting and significant. Because what happened here was that a story that had kind of been out there in the Dateline 2020 realm and hadn't gotten a lot of massive mainstream coverage, that changed because Netflix did a series on the Murdoch case, and it was a hit. And so what when that happens, 
Netflix does a couple things. One, they send a signal to the rest of the news media. We got a hit, folks. We got a hit. A hit's a hit. Move on it. We've got a hit going on here. We've got to jump all over this. We've got an audience for this. It simultaneously creates the perception that there is an audience for this that is larger than the average cable news audience at any given moment. But also, it creates an audience. That's how powerful Netflix is. Because when it's a hit on Netflix, you now have enough people who know about a story and are invested in the story that the rest of the news media feels as if they can take advantage of that. They can feast on that. Aha! We've got an audience. We've got an audience that's large enough to to benefit us, so we've got to give them what they want and, and everything else be damned. Doesn't matter what else the story is, we're going all Murdoch all the time, at least as much as we can get away with, because we have a built-in audience. And the way this works in cable news is every cable news channel has a baseline audience. And it's been decreasing, in, by and large, especially at CNN, in recent years. But whatever that baseline audience is for that given time period, if they can find a subject, it doesn't matter whether it has any news value or not. If they can find a subject that will give that number a bump, they will discard everything else to do that for as long as that story works. And a trial, of course, is perfect because a trial usually has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And this one ended with Murdoch correctly being convicted of the murders of both his son and his wife. And now you probably won't hear very much about it. But that's how cable news works. And I've seen this both as an observer and in my own real life numerous times. I remember I got bumped from a very critical interview that could have been theoretically life-changing that was supposed to happen on Anderson Cooper on CNN the evening after CNN had done an interview with Dottie Sandusky and me from Dottie Sandusky's home. And part of the deal was that I was going to be flown from State College to New York. They were going to do a segment on the Dottie Sandusky interview, and then Anderson Cooper and I would come out on set to discuss this. And that would have been absolutely explosive. It would have been one of the historic moments in the history of CNN and cable news in all likelihood. And um, and this was all very much negotiated beforehand. In fact, it was the only reason why I agreed uh, for CNN to be able to do the interview with Dottie Sandusky because it was the interview that came after Matt Lauer and then on NBC on the Today Show because Matt Lauer had come in before CNN to do the first ever interview with Dottie Sandusky uh, after the entire Penn State Sandusky fiasco scandal. And so it aired on the Today Show, and then CNN begged me for Dottie to be able to do the interview. And part of the deal was, okay, I'll, I'll do it, but I don't want to be able to have you guys do a segment where you're trashing Dottie Sandusky uh, with no one there to defend her. So I got to be up on set. And they said, okay, fine. And so they gave me the you know a hotel room, and they uh, got me uh, – a flight and the whole bit. Well, what happened was, and we, I, in retrospect, I saw this happening as the day was progressing. That happened to be just a few days after that infamous Malaysian airliner had disappeared. And, you know, there was nothing new. There was absolutely nothing new. I and mean, there never would be anything new with regard to the Malaysian airliner. It just disappeared. 
But I was told once I got into New York that I had been bumped because of breaking news involving the Malaysian airliner. Again, there was no breaking news. What happened was they got the ratings from the previous couple days, and they realized they had a hit. They had an audience for the Malaysian missing airliner, that the missing Malaysian airliner audience was bigger than their baseline audience. And they were going all in on the Malaysian missing airliner until further notice. And they ended up going all in on the Malaysian missing airliner. This was in 2014 for months. And and it created numerous embarrassing situations, including Don Lemon claiming or questioning whether or not the plane might've been lost in a black hole. (laughs) He actually said that on the air. Is it possible that the, the plane got lost into a black hole on CNN? He still has a job to this day, at least as, as of this taping. He might for not much longer, though, for reasons that have nothing to do with this. But that was a real education to me about how it is that cable news actually operates. And the Murdoch case was a classic example of that. Netflix created for them an audience that they either knew or thought would be larger than their baseline audience. And that's why they went all in on the Alex Murdoch uh, situation with his trial. And thankfully, he was properly uh, convicted of uh, both accounts against him. And, um, you know, <laughs> I just thought that was interesting. I think that is, that's an indication of, of the way cable news really is incredibly dysfunctional and why they're not to be trusted. All right. That'll do it for uh, this episode of the death of journalism in the next episode. I'm expecting that we will have a very special guest related to the entire Penn state, Joe Paterno, Jerry Sandusky, fiasco if unless something really unforeseen happens we're going to have a first-hand account of a reporter who tried valiantly to tell the real story what happened there but was unable to do so uh, largely because you guessed it journalism is dead and he'll also talk about the dramatic impact that it had on his life so assuming that happens i think you'll find that particularly interesting until then As always, thanks for listening. Please remember to subscribe, rate, and review this episode. Also remember to tell a friend or two, because obviously the news media is never going to help us spread the word about this podcast. Until next time, that's episode number 38 of The Death of Journalism. My name is John Ziegler. The Death of Journalism is a Workhouse Connect John Ziegler Production. Executive Producer, Mike Agavino, with our hosts, Liz Abib and John Ziegler. You can find The Death of Journalism wherever you get your podcasts. If you like us, please give us a five-star rating and review. Please join our Twitter community, The Death of Journalism. Thanks for listening. Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? 
No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Grand Canyon University, an affordable private Christian university, is one of the largest and fastest growing universities in the country, offering more than 270 programs online. In addition to federal grants and aid, GCU's online students received nearly $130 million in institutional scholarships in 2022. Find your purpose at Grand Canyon University. Private, Christian, affordable. Visit gcu.edu slash myoffer to see the scholarships you may qualify for.